Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST-158, the Pell-Mell record, The Bumper Crop. It's our first episode of the year. It's our first episode where we're dealing with a full-length Pell-Mell release, which is cool. And to help us along the way, we've got a special guest, Brent. You bet. Bob Bierman's on the show. That's awesome. And and it's a great interview. Uh, Bob's a great guy. Um, in helping us out, kind of understand and go super deep into this release. Um, and Brant, before we go any further, I just want to note for the record that I think this is the first episode also where we are going to go to the nines. Do you know what I mean? No. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm going to, you'll know, you'll figure it out when we get there. I think we're going to the nines for the first time All right. on this uh, show. Does this have something to do with the comp zone? No, okay. this is not the comp zone. This is, we're going to go to the nines. This is like a new thing to keep your eye out for okay. on the Mojack show, okay? Hey, I thought we might rebrand for 2021 and just go by YDKM. YDKM? Yeah. No thanks. <laughs> no thanks. That's a no-go on the rebrand. <laughs> no, no go on the rebrand. Yeah, I'm going to try and rebrand something for you next episode, though. So uh, strap yourself in. Okay. So how long were we off? Like a month and a half or something? I don't know. Four <sighs> weeks, five weeks? Too long. Yeah, let's never do that again. That sucked so hard. <laughs> okay, so um, we're, what are we doing? We're spieling. It's top tens, right? Yeah, so about a month after everyone else did it, we're going to do our top ten of 2020. I'm glad we do it a month after everyone else because so many people start doing theirs in November mm -hmm. and they miss a bunch of releases. It's true. It's true. <laughs> like last year, I even missed uh, the new Sophie Major and the new Gang of Four record. And I completely forgot about it when we did our top tens last year. So Bogus. Yeah, totally. Bogus. Okay, so how, how do we do this? Remind me, it's been a whole year. Well, we go back and forth. So we're going to start at number 10 and count our way down. So why don't you start us with your number 10 pick? All right, all right. So number 10 for me, it was a recommend during the year to you. The band is Modern Rituals, and the record is This Is History on Holy Roar Records. This is, you know, tuned down, low, melodic, noise, post-hardcore it's their second album just love it it's hmm. awesome i wonder i'm curious to see if there's any recommends from me in your top 10 hmm i don't think so but i definitely think there's like a pretty good chance we'll have some overlap this year oh i Let's guarantee see. it i guarantee there's overlap okay your number 10 hit it james williamson and dennis tech two to hmm. one uh, came out on Cleopatra Records. Dennis, of course, was guitar songwriter in Radio Birdman. And James uh, co-wrote Raw Power with Iggy, uh, as well as some other stuff. If you're a fan of Stooges, MC5, Birdman, etc., you'll love it. They've done other records together, and they're good too, but this one's just awesome. Yeah, I bet. I haven't heard that one. I'm, I'm already writing down something to check out, and we're only on 10. Yeah. Okay. Number nine. Another recommend I made during the year, the new Zetus album, The Cypher, on 1-2-XU Records. This is noisy indie punk. It actually would fit right on SST. This is their third album. Kind of sonic youthy, but that's actually kind of pigeonholing them. Um, but they do have really great male and female vocals as well. Love this record. Still spinning it. 
Awesome. Yeah, that was a good one. You recommended that to me. Okay, my number nine made some top 10 lists this year for sure. It's the great Irish band Fontaine's DC with their Ah. new record, A Hero's Death on Partisan Records. Made a bunch of lists, like I said, with good reason. Kind of goth-tinged post-punk, perfect for the times we all lived through in the past year. Uh, Their debut, Dogrel, was in my honorable mentions last year, and it's really good too. Yeah, this one is in my honorable mentions this year, but that Fontaine's DC was a recommend you made to me for sure. I don't know about them uh, without you. All right, my number eight has made a lot of top tens as well. The Exhalants record, Atonement, insanely good noise rock modern noise rock self-released this is their second album maybe post hardcore noise rock too but i just love it and there's some melodic tinges as well i'm i have not gotten tired of it at all awesome my number eight i guarantee is in your top 10 it's the human impact self-titled record on ipecac Ah. new york city supergroup featuring members of unsane cop suit cop swans and more their bio calls their sound cinematic post-industrial filth rock. <laughs> that's that's pretty tough to so, beat as far as descriptions go. So so it's my number two, okay. and I have that exact quote in my write-up on it. <laughs> cinematic post-industrial filth rock. Yeah. So that's my number two, but right. uh, it's well-deserved. It is a, just a stellar record. Yeah, every track's great on it. Uh, and they've released, I think, three digital singles this year that are really good too. Yeah, I hope Ipecac uh, collects that all for some sort of physical release at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, my next one, number seven, a band called Trainer. And the uh, album is called Athletic Statics. This is on Fidel Bastro Records. They're held out as a bit of a noise rock and roll collective. Speaking of Cop Shoot Cop, the guy's vocals are kind of like cop shoot cop sometimes um a lot of people compare them to jesus lizard i think they're like a a new take on cop shoot cop and jesus lizard sounds um i've really really enjoyed this record trainer athletic statics okay my number seven uh should come as no surprise to listeners of the show because i've raved about this band before motorcycle the all is one on rune gramophone norwegian Prog Trio. It's their umpteenth album. They just go from strength to strength. Uh, It's the third in a trilogy. This one has a 42-minute five-part epic on it called NOX. It's just mind-blowing. It's it's a double album. If you like 70s prog, it doesn't get any better than Motorcycle. Nice. All right, so my next one is uh, the new record by X, Alphabet Land. This one came out on Fat Possum, I believe. Yeah. I've really been digging it ever since I got it. It's their first studio album since Jesus in 1993, if you can believe it. It still sounds like the classic X, but without sounding like a rehash or just a nostalgia job. It's definitely uh, a really great modern X record, and the whole band is just on fire. Love it. <laughs> it's my number two pick. Ha <laughs> <laughs> I just... But wow, they did it. X released an album that stands up to their classics. I I can't imagine any fan of the band being disappointed with this record. And yep. and to to anybody who wants to message us about Billy Zoom's politics, or Xenes for that matter, don't. Because I don't care. The album rules, period. 
Yeah. And in fact, one of the things that I like, it is an album. It's an album's album. And I, I even like how uh, the very last track is, you know, that beat poetry by Exene. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Yeah. Okay. My number six is a band called Maggot Heart. Ooh. Mercy Machine is the name of the record on a label called Rapid Eye. So in 2014, there was this doomy band called The Oath that came out of Sweden and quickly split up. Uh, but they got a, a, there was a big buzz about them. Uh, vocalist Johanna Sedonis uh, formed a band called Lucifer with Nicky Anderson of Helicopters after that. And the guitarist, Linnea Olsen, uh, did a few other projects, but then she formed this band, Maggot Heart. They released a record t- called Dusk Till Dawn in 2018 that didn't really grab me, but this one just rules. It's heavy, but it's not metal. It's catchy as hell. It's a little bit doomy. It's got a post-punk feel to it. Uh, check out the track Roses on this record. It's probably the song of the year for me. Roses by Maggot Heart. Yep. Okay. Well, on the on the Doom theme, my next one is the band Slift and the album Uman. I recommended this to you. You checked it out. I don't think it really impressed you that much, uh, but I love it. It's on Vicious Circle Records. It's their second full length of psych doom rock from France. I love it. I just love it. Awesome. My number five is the band Zombie with no E on the end. The record's called 2020. It's on Relapse. Still the original duo of drummer A.E. Patera and synth with Steve Moore, uh, who also plays some bass and guitar on this album. They've been intermittently putting out amazing synth-heavy prog albums since the early 2000s, and they're the undisputed kings of their subgenre. They've yet to release a bad record. Zombie. Love it. With no E. No E. Got it. That's very, uh, it's very Goblin-esque. It I'm is. I'm pretty sure that, yeah. They're, they're, they are Goblin-esque, but better. Okay. Goblin-esque, but better. Yeah. Noted. This is my, Zombie 2020 is my go-to Goblin record. <laughs> <laughs> nice all right um my next one uh, this won't come as any surprise to you it's the self-titled Kariki album on discord uh this is amy joe and ian and i, I could i was trying to think about like oh, how would i describe this why do i love it and i think it's because it just feels like it kind of feels like home like it feels so familiar, so right. All that DNA that Ian Mackay helped form in me when I was 13 or 14 just goes wild when I listen to this record. Yeah. My number four pick, Ryan, is the self-titled Kariki record on Discord. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I'll just add to that. If we can't get a new Fugazi record, this will do just fine. That's right. And they're playing the wind-up party, don't forget. Yeah, right, right, yeah. I'm sure everyone listening to this show has heard this album and loved it instantly. Yeah. Well, as with this next one, I hope, uh, and I'm sure as well, my next one is the latest Bob Mould record, Blue Hearts on Merge. This is my second year in a row where Bob's record is in my top 10. Nuff said. He just yeah. cannot stop putting out good music. And again, like, the rebirth of Bob Mould with... Uh, Jason and John is just insanely good. Yeah, I knew you'd have that in there for sure. My number three is the new record by this dude, Jeremy Ivey, Waiting Out the Storm. I've talked about Jeremy before on the show. 
I believe his record from last year called The Dream and the Dreamer. I don't know. I don't think it made my top 10, but I know I talked about it because it just blew me away. He's the new Neil Young for sure. Phenomenal songwriter. I cannot believe he hasn't gotten more attention. Lyrically, nobody is more on point than he is as far as capturing the current state of global affairs. I can't recommend Jeremy Ivey enough. He's just Jeremy a, Ivey. Hmm. Yeah, just an amazing songwriter. So it's Neil-esque, like would you say? Or yeah, in what way? Like what era of Neil are we thinking? Like like 70s era. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think you'd like it. The songs are just really well written, great lyrics, very hooky. It's good. Just good solid rock. Or, or like Tom Petty or something like that. Okay. He's just a good songwriter. I love good songwriters. Uh, yeah. Well, my number two was Human Impact. So what, and I think I covered one of yours. Do we go to number ones now? Yeah, my number two was X. So I th wonder if we have the same number one. I bet we do. No way. I, I don't think we do. Okay, you hit me. So my number one for the year is the new album by Hum called Inlet. This is their first record since 1997, the great album Downward is Heavenward. Hum, of course, is, you know, low, slow, melodic, shoegaze, 90s, post-hardcore. Just like Shiner came back this year with an insane album like more than two decades later, and I just love it. Hmm. Yep, most definitely not my number one pick. What was your number one then? My number one pick, Ryan, was the brand new record from ACDC called Power Up. <laughs> no way! Yeah. It's good, hey? Angus did it, man. He got Cliff Williams to hold off his retirement. He brought in Phil Rudd, despite his legal problems. His nephew Stevie is back uh, to stand in for Malcolm. And he wisely didn't try anything silly in the vocal department and brought Brian back, who sounds great, by the way. If this is the final ACDC album, they'll be going out on an incredible high note. Easily their best since Stiff Upper Lip. Yes. Great riffs, great songs. Brian's on top form. Uh, it's too, just too bad COVID had to ruin their plans for one more lap around the globe to show everyone who the undisputed masters are. Yeah, that record was definitely um, highly enjoyed here in the last... Uh bit of 2020 and still now i was just playing it the other day in my um honorable mentions though but number one that's high praise i totally agree though it is their best one since stiff upper lip for sure the riffage is insane just yeah. insane yeah they're definitely they definitely didn't phone that one in let's do some honorable mentions ryan mine i i have a lot you've got a bigger list so uh why don't you hit it and then i'll bat clean up i'll see how many you've got of mine Probably not very many. I'm going to go real fast, though. Okay, Natural Child, self-titled. Couldn't even find much about this record. I think it's digital only. I've talked about this band before. Total Stones, Dead, J.J. Kale vibe, uh, put through a garage rock filter. Really good. Uh, speaking of the Dead, the Green Leaf Rustlers are Chris Robinson's Cosmic Country covers band, and they released a cool double live album on his Silver Arrow label called From Within Marin. That's really good. Pacific Range, High Upon the Mountain, debut on Brent Redemaker's uh, Curation Records. Very Dead-esque, but really well done. Uh, Sunset Canyoneers, self-titled record on You Are the Cosmos. It's their debut, also really great kind of cosmic country. Hmm. The new Chuck Prophet, The Land That Time Forgot, his long-time label now, Yep Rock. 
Uh, great year to be a Chuck Prophet fan. His back ca- catalog is being reissued. We got a great book about Green on Red and his solo career called What Makes the Monkey Dance. Uh, a band I've talked about before. I think they made my top 10 lists in 2016 and 2017. They're called Arboretum. Let It All In on Thrill Jockey. Just a great folky rock band out of Baltimore. Really good. Drive-By Truckers, Ryan, released two albums this year, The Unraveling and The New OK. Both are good. The Dirty Knobs, Reckless Abandon. This is Mike Campbell's band. He had this band going while he was still with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but obviously with Tom's unfortunate passing a few years back, he's got time to focus on it now. He can really write a song, and he can sing. Uh, He actually sounds a lot like Tom Petty, so that's really good. Daniel Romano, this Canadian singer-songwriter, took full advantage of lockdown and released 10 albums. Oh yeah, Uh, I read about that. (laughs) They're actually all really good. Highlights are the live album, OK Wow, which shows more of his T-Rex meets country rock side. He released a killer prog album with one song on it called Forever Loves Fool. Uh, You can find most of this on his band camp, by the way. The most interesting thing he did was this record called Daniel Romano's Outfit Do What Could Have Been Infidels by Bob Dylan and the Plugs. It's him and his band covering the Bob Dylan record Infidels as though it was done by the Plugs. And it's just fantastic. (laughs) Thelonious Monster released a record called Oh That Monster. It's their first record in 16 years. Uh, it's got Dix Denny back on guitar, Martin Lenoble, Chris Hansom, of, of course, and Pete Weiss. So it's actually, you know, a reunion, not just like a Bob Forrest record or whatever. It's really good. Hmm. The Professionals, live in London. This is the rebooted version of the band with Tom Spencer replacing Steve Jones. Their comeback album, What in the World, was my number two pick in 2017. This is a great live album. They cover their entire career, and it ends with some Sex Pistols tracks, too. Uh, And they also released three EPs this year with some new studio tracks on all three of them, and all three are really good. The Damned, The Rockfield Files, a new EP recorded at the famed Rockfield Studios, which is where they recorded the Black Album back in 1980. One of the tracks, Black as the Night, came out on the comp of the same name last year, and it's a must-have for sure. Speaking of the Dand, Rat Scabies and Paul Gray, along with Alfie Agnew of Adolescence and D.I., along with Sean Elliott of D.I., have another new album as Professor and the Madman called Seance. That's okay, but for me, the best Damned-related project that could have easily been in my top 10 is the second album by Sensible Gray Cells called Get Back to the World, which is Paul Gray and Captain Sensible together. That's great. Uh, The Empty Hearts have a new record on Wicked Cool called The Second Album. It's Wally Palmar of The Romantics on vocals, Andy Babiak of Chesterfield Kings on bass, Elliot Easton of The Cars on guitar, and Clem Burke of Blondie on drums. That's really good. What does that sound like? Uh, It just sounds like... Power pop? Yeah, power power poppy, garage rock. Yep. Yeah, okay. That does sound cool. Uh, Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine, Tea Party Revenge Porn. That's good. Uh, a band, Ryan, that I... I'm surprised this didn't make your top 10. It almost made mine. 
Don't Sleep, Turn the Tide. Dave Smalley, of course, on vocals. Probably number 11 on my list, actually. Really, hey? Yeah. I didn't know you liked it that much. I loved it, man. Yeah, well, me too. Yeah, but, not, you know, not top 10. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention it uh, next week during our SST roundup. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, Red Fiction, Visions of the Void. This is a recommend for you, Ryan. It's on the Zadok label, guitar-heavy jazz fusion with some math rock touches, led by Jason Schimmel from Secret Chiefs 3. You'll like that, Red Fiction, Visions of the Void. Uh, speaking of Zadok, there's some John Zorn releases I mentioned a while back uh, with his heavier avant jazz group, Simulcrum, a live one called Beyond Good and Evil, and a studio one called Baphomet. Those are really good. Uh, a Skronken Good Jazz record from my current favorite guitarist, Hedvig Molestad, uh, on her longtime label, The Great Rune Gramophone. Check that out. Sun Watchers from New York released a full length called Oh Yeah, which is good. But their EP called Brave Rats is even better. Psychedelic jazz rock. They cover Sonny Chirac on it, Alice Coltrane. It's awesome. Shabaka and the Ancestors' second album, We Are Here by History, on the reactivated Impulse label, is great. Sax-driven jazz with some world music influences. Some metal, Ryan. The new Eternal Champion, Ravening Iron, is great Maiden-esque power metal. Dark Fortress, Spectres from the Old World, really well done German black metal. Uh, a fave black metal group of mine, actually a duo called Inquisition, released a new record called Black Mass for a Mass Grave. It's a little more rock than some of their older stuff, but it's cool. Necro Wretch, The Ones from Hell, French black metal, Venom style, wonderfully satanic record. <laughs> Voivod has a new double live album called Lost Machine, and it's totally awesome. Uh, about half of Ozzy's new one, Ordinary Man, is really good. Carcass has a new EP that's good. Benediction, Scriptures, new one from the great UK death metal legends. Could have also been in my top 10. Amazing groove to it. Some serious bolt thrower vibes. Their first record in 12 years. High Command from Ryan, Worcester Mass. Mm. released a new single and it's totally amazing magic touch this norwegian hard rock band with a total 80s vibe like Dokken or something like that has a record called heads have got to roll it's really good uh here's a recommend for you ryan isotope soap is the band an artifact of insects swedish kind of devo-esque weirdo rock clock of time pestilent planet modern post-punk for Ber from berlin on this great UK label, Static Shock. That's really good. A band I've raved about before. This was also on my top 10 shortlist. Cabbage. Amanita Pentherina from Manchester. Super well done post-punk. Cabbage. Tuning. Defining the purpose. Melodic hardcore on Indecision Records. You'd love it, Ryan. Tuning. Defining the purpose. Underground Fire, Ashes of Life, really well done goth rock with the emphasis on rock, kind of like Sisters of Mercy. Do you know this band, Ryan? Somerset Thrower? I don't. Check them out. Paint My Memory is the name of the record. Somerset Thrower is the band from on Long Island. Uh, they're on this killer hardcore label called Triple B, but they totally nail the 90s indie rock sound. Cool. Band called Wobbler. Dwellers of the Deep, Norwegian prog rock, one of the best new bands doing classic 70s prog, total brain salad surgery vibes on this one. 
Dave Alvin from An Old Guitar, a comp of rare and unreleased recordings. Uh, Dave never disappoints. And then some of your recommends, Ryan. I hope I'm not scooping you here, but... Scoop away. Dead, Raving and Drooling. Really liked yep. that record. Yeah. Uh, Exhalance was great. Yeah. Mets, Atlas Vending. I thought that would be in your top 10 for sure. That's really good. Very close. Yeah. And then I have some reissues too, Ryan. But why don't you hit me with some stuff and then I'll I'll hit you with some reissues. Okay. Yeah. So honorable mentions for me that you haven't mentioned already or we hasn't come up already. Um, Curtis A put out a new record, Jerks mm. of Fate. Of course, Curtis is from Minneapolis and um, played around the scene. We spoke about Slim Dunlap a while back, and Curtis A's new record is actually really, really good. Um, he released some records on Twin Tone as well way back when. Mm-hmm. Um, the band Buildings put out their last record called Negative Sound. This is uh, Noise Rock on Gilead Media or at, at Antenna Krizku. They've had a bunch of great records. This is their last one, and they broke up right after. Blacklisters, more noise rock. Their record, Fantastic Man, their self-released third album. Ed Hall released something uh, called Permission to Rock Denied on Forbidden Place Records. We both liked that record, Push, by the band Heads. Right. That's a great record this year. Hey Colossus put out a record called Dances and Curses, which will come up next week, I think on wrong speed records live skull put out their dangerous visions record also on bronson recordings like their record from last year that's a really good record like that one was almost in my top 10 the new live skull Hmm. mint mile tim midget's band from silkworm and bottomless pit the the new mint mile record ambertron on company minus one great record moving targets the Humbucker record came out on Boss 2-inch. They also had a split 10-inch with the Swipes on Mad Butcher Records. We mentioned the the Shiner record, Schadenfreude on Two Black Eyes. Great record. Uh, Shuck, this band called Shuck, which is a, a noise rock band. Uh, the record Petrichor and Rainbows on Hominid Sounds. Very good. Silver Scrolls put out their Play Music for Walks record. That's Brian and Dave from Polvo. That's on three-lobed recordings. Uh, The Sweet 16, still enjoying that Mm -hmm. record. Mine Would Be the Sun, Rob Nesbitt from the band Bum. That's a great uh, double LP. Awesome. Wire, one of my all-time faves, put out two records last year, 1020 and Mindhive. Both excellent. Savick, remember that band, Brent? Savick put out a new record. Rotting Teeth in the Horse's Mouth, a great record. And I also had like ACDC and Dead and Fontaine's DC, but we already covered those. What about your reissues? Uh, well, there was a ton, but I just selected a few here. The Stones Goathead Soup reissue is great. Uh, the Stooges Live at Goose Lake on Third Man's really awesome. Mm-hmm. That label Pine Hill Records reissued a super rare album by this band called Zygote, called A Wind of Knives. It's the group... Stig Miller and George Fletcher formed following the breakup of Amoebics, and it's really amazing. Total killing joke vibe. You'd probably like that. Zygote. You should check that out. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Thunders, Live from Zurich 85. Uh, I don't think that's been released before. It's really good. It's a good recording, too. They re-released that Gang War record this year, too, by the way. That is not good, but this is. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, the replacements, please, to Meet Me box set. Not quite as monumental as Dead Man's Pop for me, but still really good. What about for you, Ryan? You're a Turbo fan. Replacements? Well, they also re-released the live incarcerated triple LP, The Replacements, and the Model Prisoners record got re-released this year. That's the Sonny Vincent and Bob Stinson band. Oh. That uh, The record Cow Milking Music that came out, uh, it was originally released in 2010, of course, long after Bob passed away on Disturbed Records, but that one got re-released this year as well. What's the band called? Model Prisoners. I'm writing this down. Sonny Vincent's been on a super big like reissue tear, and he uh, put out the, uh, the Bob Stinson record too, which is cool. Hmm. That's the good thing about lockdown, man. We got some people to crawl under their stairs and dig out some old tapes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Thin Lizzy, Rock Legends. Kind of the daddy of all box sets. Definitely the box set of the year. 99 tracks in total across six CDs, 74 of which are unreleased in any Ooh. form. And they're not barrel scrapings either. There's so much amazing stuff on there. Uh, Neil Young's Archives Volume 2 is also really amazing. Nikki Sudden's Bible Belt reissue on Easy Action has a ton of previously unreleased tracks. It's really good. The Gun Club Miami double LP on Blixa Sounds has a second LP with Miami demos on it. And they're actually really good, and I don't think those have been released before either. That uh, self-titled release by The Whip that we've talked about, Ryan. Yep. The Pylon Box, also really great. Fear More Beer double LP with the full demos. That's good. The band Fang. Uh, re reissued their comeback record from 1998 called American Nightmare. The Paul Collins beat Another World, Best of the Archives, is a really great rarities comp. And Red Cross, self-titled EP reissued on Merge. Cool packaging, five great bonus tracks. Check out the song Fun with Connie, and you'll hear why it's in such an interesting document. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. Greg Hetson uh, was in this version of Red Cross. Okay. That's it. For reissues? That's it. Okay, let me lay a couple on you. Um, of course, the Circle Jerks Group Sex mm -hmm. was reissued. The 100 Flowers Drawing Fire 12-inch on In the Red came out again. That was awesome. Extra tracks and, like, very authentic packaging. That Pile record demonstration on mm -hmm. Improved Sequence, loving that. The Bob Mold Distortion Box, of course, came out. 24 CDs. Man, oh man, I listened to it from start to finish over the holidays and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> even even the electro discs, which I totally wrote off before, I don't love them, but I don't know, like all these years later, maybe I have a slightly greater appreciation for them for some reason. Is there like liner notes in that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lengthy. There's like a, um, not a book, but pretty lengthy liner notes in there. It's a good read. And there's a lot of people who um, made uh, contributions. They interviewed Bob, like Fred Armisen, for example, has got right. like a, a write-up in there and, and other folks. Um, let's see here. We You already covered the replacements. Son of Wharf Rat Tales came oh, out again on right. Wharf Rat Gramophone. Don't forget the uh, the Jay Mascus box, Fed Up and Feeling Strange. The Mud Honey box, Real Low Vibe. The, that band Oxes, I mentioned that a while back. The Fourth Wall came out, the re-release on Computer Students. The Malls, Brandt. The Malls have a tie 
very, very tenuous, but a tie to Pell-Mell via folks that are playing with uh, Bob currently. And we'll, we'll get into that in the interview. The Malls, White Stains. This is a collection that came out on Rave Up Recordings. Um, they had a single, but this is a folk collection. And Peter Prescott from Burma, customized and Volcano Sons was in the Malls. Um, let me see here. I might have one. Oh, and Trotsky Ice Pick. They released the re-released their Poison Summer LP. That was originally released on old scratch gramophone, then on SST in another form at SST 239. So we'll get to that in a couple of years. And they they're uh, they mentioned on their website that this is the first of seven legacy albums from 83 to 93 that they are going to reissue on Poison Summer Records, which is really cool. Hmm, right on. That's it. Lots of reissues too. Yeah, hey, and if anybody's wondering why we're not talking about more of the SST stuff that came out uh, uh, or related to SST, there's a ton of it, and we're doing that next week, so stay tuned for that. Yep. If you want to hear what the SST community has been up to uh, in 2020, we've got you covered on next week's episode. Got a few pages of Fool Scap to cover next yeah, week. Right on. What a year, man. What a year. I just hate it when people say there's no good music anymore. Oh, yeah. There's always something good out there. Yep. If you spend a few minutes, you can find something new almost every day. Yeah. Let's get into Pell-Mell. History Lesson, Part 1. All right, Brant. So we have Bob on the show. What's the best way to kick it off? Um, I've got some of the history, but I bet you you've got a pretty, a pretty detailed history. And I've got a list of some of the releases, too. Well, there is an excellent piece on the Perfect Sound Forever page by Dave Lang, where he interviews right. Robert Bierman, David Spaulding, Steve Fisk, and Greg Freeman. Uh, it's pretty comprehensive, so I, I used some of that to work up a little history lesson, but we also kind of cover it in the interview pretty thoroughly, I'd say. But uh, here's what I came up with. Here's what Dave says uh, in his piece. Pell-Mell took the twang of Dwayne Eddy and the Ventures and mixed it with a jagged post-punk approach and a beautiful, evocative lyricism which has a wonderfully cinematic quality. The perfectly complementary interplay between the bass, drums, rhythm section and the expressive guitar lines possess a sublime beauty which few others have ever matched. So the band was formed by drummer Robert Bierman and guitarist Bill Owen in Portland, Oregon in 1980. They added Arnie May on his second guitarist and J. Lars Sorensen on bass, both from local art band UHF. Robert, uh, in this interview with Dave Lang, lists their primary influences as the Feelies, the B-52s, Pylon, Television, A Certain Ratio, Joseph K., Fire Engines, Pill, The Contortions, Per Ubu, as well as having a fondness for Dwayne Eddy, The Shadows, and The Ventures. Although they auditioned several vocalists, they eventually decided to go on as an instrumental group. They recorded their debut 12-inch EP in 1981 in Seattle at Triangle Recording. They self-released it on their Indoor Records imprint, and SST later reissued it as SST 241. So, Ryan, here's another group we're kind of doing in reverse order. Kind of like Sonic Youth. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've got... Five releases before Bumper Crop, actually. Yeah. Let's see what you have. Okay. Arnie leaves the band right before the record comes out, as Bob recalls in the Perfect Sound Forever interview. Uh, he says it was down to Arnie wanting to add a vocalist, as he recalled it. 
this EP gets great reviews and some college uh, radio airplay, so they go on tour as a three-piece with a Roland synth that they use to beef up the sound. Future Sub Pop founder Bruce Pavitt is by this point acting as the group's manager, and he goes along on the tour as their tour manager. Prior to leaving for the tour, they record a show in Portland and self-release it on cassette as Live Cassette. This tape was mixed by Steve Fisk. Uh, It has a few live versions of songs that end up on the bumper crop in studio versions, and it was released on CD in 2001. You can and should listen to this on the Pell-Mell Bandcamp page, where this is unfortunately the only release currently posted. Uh, When they get back from the tour, they ask Steve Fisk to join the band. We'll be getting to a Steve Fisk solo album next week uh, and be taking a deep dive into his career, so stay tuned for that. Uh, They then decide to move from Portland to San Francisco. Here's what Bob says. We wanted a larger audience and a more receptive music scene. It was also around this time that we met Ray Farrell, who had been working at Rough Trade US in distribution. He was a big fan of the Rhyming Guitars record, and he offered to help us get bookings in the Bay Area. Ray, of course, uh, as most of our listeners know, Ryan would go on to be a major player at SST a short time later when he got hired on the label around uh, early 1985. John Lars decides to move back to Northwest, and local bassist Greg Freeman responds to an ad they hang in the Rough Trade store. Greg was in local new wave band The Call, who had a few albums on Mercury and toured the US and UK. As you'll hear in the interview, this lineup records material slated to be released as a mini LP on Rough Trade US subsidiary 6th International. After this deal falls through, the band breaks up and everyone goes their separate ways. They release the studio tracks and a bunch of live recordings on a cassette on K Records called For Years We Stood Clearly as One Thing. Uh, it was this cassette that Greg Ginn heard, played for him by Ray Farrell, and we'll be fortunately hearing Pell-Mell again on the aforementioned Rhyming Guitars reissue and on SST 278, the album they recorded after this entitled Flow. Oh, hang on a second, Brant. We're going to hear them one more time on SST. We are on a comp. Are you ready to go to the nines? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> SST catalog number 913 is the bring on the China 7-inch. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget, there are some 900 catalog numbers that we're going to still, like once we're done, <laughs> we still have some 900 numbers. We're going to go to the nines when we're done. Crazy, man. All right. Ryan, why don't we kick it over to Bob? Let's do it. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Bob Bierman. Bob, thanks for being on the show. Sure, thanks for having me. All right, Bob, I'm wondering if you can take me back to uh, your childhood. Did you? Are you from Portland? Wow, my childhood. That was a long <laughs> time ago. No, I was born in, in uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Okay. I went to college in Oregon, uh, and that was where I met... Uh, Bill Owen, with whom I formed Hellmel. Oh, okay. We met in we met in Eugene, Oregon, and then later there was other stuff happened, and then we both ended up in Portland, and uh, that's where we formed Hellmel. Okay, but you started playing drums obviously much earlier. I'm assuming, like when you were in high school. Yeah, uh, before that, you know, I think like fourth grade, something like that. Oh, really? Like in school? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
were you in a band in high school? Uh, several, yes. I, I was in, uh, you know, a hard rock band. I was in a disco band, uh-huh. in addition to, the, you know, the school marching band and mm-hmm. stage band. See, I also played timpani in uh, regional orchestras mm. in Western, Western Pennsylvania. Okay. The bands that you were in outside of school, were these, did you do original music? No, they were all cover bands, you know, it was, and that was like, you know, Foghat, Aerosmith, Nazareth, UFO, Thin Lizzy, et cetera, et cetera. Covers of rock, you know, hard rock, the hard rock of the day. Right. Yeah. So by the time you get to Eugene though. (laughs) Right. Weird stuff is, weird stuff is happening in the music world. Weird stuff, right. Right. I, (laughs) Pretty, you know, I got, um, I went new wave as it was termed <laughs> back then, right? So, you know, I actually, to this day, remember giving away all of my Aerosmith albums, some of which I regret, but I, I gave away all of my hard rock records, saved Lou Reed, David Bowie, and Roxy <laughs> Music, and then went new wave, and that was sort of never looked back. That, um, that's the way that goes. Aerosmith's not cool anymore until you remember later on that you can well, still, that's exactly right. you can still like that's Aerosmith. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> there are deep, there are deep album cuts on those Aerosmith records that are great. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, uh, you know, the other thing, you know, Palmel, we didn't form with the intention of, of being an instrumental band. We simply didn't find a singer that we liked and the more we were, you know, we were sort of jamming and writing material, we just realized, you know what, these songs are great as is. We don't need a singer. So we never really had like a, you know, a, a dictum or like a, mm-hmm. we, we are going to be, you know, we, we're going to be the ones that fly this instrumental band flag. Mm-hmm. It was really more like, well, we just simply didn't find anyone who's, who's singing added anything. Right. So left them as is, which was a very very radical thing to do at the time. It doesn't seem very radical now, but there were not, there weren't any instrumental bands in this scene, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, in sort of the underground rock, punk rock scene. There, there weren't any at that time. Right. So. Okay. So did you say you, it was Arnie that you met first? Uh, no, Bill, Bill Owen. Okay. He and I uh, met originally in Eugene, Oregon, at University of Oregon. And then I moved back east after that, after one year at U of O, moved back east, then moved back to Portland, where uh, Bill was going to uh, Reed College there in Portland. And he knew Arnie, who was working in a record store selling all these cool, you know, he was the one that was telling people to buy Perugu records in Portland, Oregon in, in 1980. Right. Um, uh, so, and, and, and he was, he was also a veteran of many, um, underground Portland bands, avant-garde Portland bands. He played sax and guitar. And he brought in John Lars. He did. Right. Now tell me about the band they were in together. UHF. UHF was, a. Uh, very um, experimental. Uh, I think you know if I, I possibly improv. I don't really know, but just very, uh, very experimental. Um, 
you know, free, free. They had some noise elements. I think, I think a vacuum cleaner was part of their <laughs> lineup. Yeah. Uh, very, you know, very experimental and great. Okay. They were also, they were also funny. I remember. <laughs> I'm really curious about the Portland scene. A lot of yeah. these smaller, maybe it was, I'm assuming it was a bit smaller than obviously, you know, some of the bigger cities, but I'm always fascinated by these scenes where there's not enough bands to have the, these are the punk bands and these are the art bands. It's the whole thing is just an eclectic group of bands. And that, that's the impression I get of the Portland scene. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And very, very well put. Right. But although, even though with, even within that though, there were definitely factions um, just like in any scene, but, but, but every, I think everybody went to all the shows. Yeah. So it wasn't like, Oh, I only go to see the punk bands and I only go to see the experimental band. I think it, as I recall, it was the same people at all the shows. It, it was a very small scene. And, you know, there was this um, cooperative venue and artist space called Clockwork Joe's uh that that hosted shows and we actually rented practice space there and that was where um the rats the neo boys jungle nausea these are all these are all bands you know from that time in portland uh the wipe the wipers the wipers were before this but but also concurrent with so we found ourselves as part of that sort of clockwork joe's scene but um we were also very different, mainly because Bill Owen and I had ties to Reed College. So uh, they were, we were, I think we were um, some, some, you know, we were just different in that way, right? And I wasn't from there. I was from the East Coast. Um, the rest of the, I think most of the people in all those other bands were locals, basically. Um, and there was also a great record store, Singles Going Steady. Right. Um, that was, um, you know, supplying everybody with all the great records and everybody hung out there. And there was another great club called Urban Noise Club, um, at which many uh, touring bands would play, uh, you know, come up from San Francisco and Van- and down from Vancouver and Seattle. But yeah, it was a very, uh, a very, it was a tiny, a tiny scene back then, for sure. Yeah, well, the the great thing about it is what you just said, I think, is it makes people support maybe go to see bands that they wouldn't normally go to see if they were more in their in their tribe or however you want to put it right yeah there weren't the those that that were that we see now for sure yeah right right that's that's interesting and um yeah that is definitely a way that things were very different back then for sure yeah Okay, so you mentioned the wipers. Were the tracks on the trap sampler the first release for Pell Mell? They were, and they were produced by Greg Sage. He had this idea of putting out a, a sampler of four Portland bands, duh. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he liked us from seeing us. We played some shows with the wipers and he liked seeing he liked our live stuff and um, agreed to put us on that, which was a great a great uh, thrill at the time for yeah. sure. Okay. So then at some point you go up to Seattle 
I believe in yes. July of 81 is I think what it says on the, on the LP and you do rhyming guitars at triangle recording. Do yeah, you, re- that, do you remember that? Was, I do remember that very well. The reason we, and I was just talking about this with some of the other um, band members, we were talking about um, like, yeah, how did we end up in, in Seattle to record? Well, <laughs> that was, that was, and I remember it being, a little bit controversial in the Portland scene. The, the Portland scene was very, um, I don't know, I guess it, it sounds negative, provincial. I, I don't really mean it to sound so negative, but I remember there being some raised eyebrows that we, like it wasn't it wasn't something that cool bands did, leave town mm. to go to Seattle. There was always some rivalry, <laughs> you know, as you can imagine between Portland and Seattle yeah. and Portland bands and Seattle bands whatever. So, but we heard this record by the blackouts there. I, I think it's their first EP men in motion. Right. I think it was called. And it just, it sounded like no other record that I had ever heard at the time. It's just sounded amazing. And, you know, we figured out, we, we learned where they recorded it and that's where we went oh, to record. Okay. All right. I, I assume indoor records was the band's imprint. Yeah. That was just me and Bill Owen. Okay. Yeah. When and how does Bruce Pavitt come into the picture? Well, um, Bruce Pavitt uh, was a big fan of ours from uh, seeing us live in Portland. There were there were a couple shows in Portland where where the um, early Olympia bands played, and I think we might have played on the bills with them too. Uh, you know, John Foster's Pop Philosophers, uh, The Tiny Holes, and some other Olympia bands that are escaping me at the moment, unfortunately. Names are escape, escaping me. But um, So he knew us from that. And also, so he was, he was doing um, Sub Pop as a, mag, as a fanzine. He, he was putting out basically a, a fanzine, as you did back then. And, uh, you know, a stapled Xeroxed fanzine writing about regional region. His, his whole thing was keeping tabs on all the many regional scenes across the country, right. like the one we just described in Portland. There were every city had a scene like that. Yeah. And so Sub Pop's mission was to document that for everybody across the country so that everyone had a sense of what was going on everywhere else. So, it, you know, he was great at networking with all these different bands and and the and the other fanzines and other and, and radio stations, record stores, distributors, etc. Um, so he I, I, I'm not I don't I, I, I think he just simply like he heard the rhyming guitars record and loved it and wanted to put a track on a track from it on his next compilation cassette which was sub pop five mm. and that's he put um spy versus spy from the rhyming guitars record on that cassette and we and we we became friends eventually he became our manager tour manager slash manager we because he had these great connections with all these other scenes you know he basically booked a tour for us across country you know playing in Milwaukee and Chicago and DC, Boston, New York, et cetera. You know, in a, in a, we just drove our van across the country. So, 
Right. Um, we also ended up on, I think, two more Sub Pop cassettes after that, or one more, I'm not sure. Um, and, and it's also through through Bruce that we met Steve Fisk, who later became our keyboard player, and all the other great people from the Olympia scene that we've all, we've always felt a great kinship with. So before Steve joins, you go yeah. down to, I believe, for the tour, you're down to a trio. Yeah, so that was that was interesting. Um, so Arnie May left Palmel right, pretty much like right before Rhyming Guitars came out. Um, just you know, different opinions on the future of the band and stuff. So we, so he left, and we 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 in, instead of replacing him, we decided to continue as a three piece. So we basically had to write all new material. We had a lot of material that was much more like New Saigon and Red Rhythm, sort of the longer two guitar bliss out uh, songs from the Rhyming Guitars record. We had more material like that that we could no longer do. But, you know, we, we just, well, we'll do it as a three piece, which was, I guess that's one of those punk rock things that you do. So... <laughs> You know, we we and we went on tour. You know, a lot of people came to see us on that. I shouldn't say a lot. A lot back then, you know, right. fifty people would have been a lot. Yep. Anyway, our that EP got a lot of got a lot of traction um, nationwide. Um, it got a lot of great reviews. It was even reviewed in the NME very favorably. Wow, which was which was great back then. Um, so it, it became kind of a college radio hit underground hit and so a lot of people came out to see us during that tour with bruce pavitt expecting to hear that pell-mell and it was not at all that pell-mell uh, um mm -hmm. and so um you know and we, that's what we put out uh we had a live cassette of that material and that's what we we put out we put that out as something to sell on our tour uh, merch okay. so that live cassette that's recorded at a hometown show prior to the tour yeah, okay. right. That was recorded at the Metropolis Club in Portland. Okay. Yeah. Now on this yeah. tour, what kind of bands did you play with? Were you, were you? I'm always uh, curious for like outsider bands. Did you get paired with, you know, similar bands? Did you just get lumped into the punk scene? And what? And well, what, here's the, to, you know, to your earlier point, there were no. That this was this was in these these were the mishmash years. Right. So like we played with noise bands there weren't any similar, there really weren't any similar bands. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not remembering a lot of the, you know, we played, I know in Boston, we played with the Neats. We played mm. two shows with the Neats and one with Mission of Burma. We also, we also played with Mission of Burma at our show in Cleveland. Yeah, but there weren't, you know, there was, there were, they were like, it was punk rock shows. They, they, it wasn't, there were, there weren't, well, first of all, there wasn't any post-punk then, or there was, but nobody called it that, I guess. Right. Um, you know, nobody called the Gang of Four post-punk back then that I knew of. Um, so, we, you know, it was just like the the punk rock bands, right. you know, new wave and punk rock bands. Okay. So fo yeah. following that tour, Steve joins yeah. the band, and the four yeah. of you moved to Berkeley. Why Berkeley? Okay, so here's so, so okay, so 
further on the backstory is we we um, worked with Steve on mixing the live cassette. Ah. And while we were up there, we talked about him joining, becoming a member, um, which which was great. We were we were big fans of his his of his stuff. His track on Sub Pop Five was the was the thing that cemented the deal. There's a great cut of his on that Sub Pop Five compilation cassette. Okay. Um, and you know we wanted to we wanted to not we were still in the well we kind of did it as a trio. We had a synthesizer. We Bill Owen bought a synthesizer that we would just turn on. It was it, the the synthesizer parts at that point were were basically like a a wash of noise that he would go over and turn on when he wasn't when he was between guitar riffs as a trio. That's how that worked. So then you know we made more of a conscious effort to up the keyboard game consider, considerably um, and add Steve Fisk. And then he he we decided to move. We felt like we felt like we had gone as far as we could in Portland, sort of uh, building an audience wise. And so we moved to the Bay Area, mostly so that Bill could continue continue college at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. Ah, okay. So that's how we ended up uh, in the East Bay, you know, in in that area in the Bay Area. And plus, you know, we. We weren't just going to move anywhere. We wanted to move move to a place with what we had hoped, what we hoped would be a, a thriving music scene for us to fit into, which didn't really happen in San Francisco, sadly. Oh, I would have thought the opposite. No, very hard town. Um, I, and I and you know who knows? Was it because was it because we weren't from there? I don't know. But on the other hand, you have to you have to think about the music. Like, okay, so inst- it was not easy being an instrumental band on these punk rock bills, you know. So, so we were always it was we were just constantly pushing this boulder up a mountain. Like, no, really, there's no singer. No, fine, it'll <laughs> don't need one. It's fine. It's fine. You'll see, you know. And like, you know. And I think a lot of our I don't know. I've, I've I've spent a lot of time talking about how we used to always bristle at being lumped in with surf bands because for a while there was a like a there was kind of a retro surf music right thing yep. going on yep. and we were so like yes yes of course the Ventures surf bands certainly influenced us but we were in no way interested in that kind of. Um, you know, shtick. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so there was, okay. Yeah. We're not, yes, we're instrumental and we're not jazz and we're not a surf band and there are guitars and you know, it's noisy. So it was just always an uphill battle. And, you know, we, we did play many good shows in San Francisco and we did have a crowd and audience, but it never reached. We, we never, I don't, well, I'll just speak for myself. I never felt like we were a part of any, San Francisco scene in any way. Hmm. I'm also not even sure now. So the San Francisco bands at that time were like uh, Translator, Romeo Void, you know, like really like new wave, you know, pop, new wave pop bands. 
And then, there, but then there were also like extremely arty industrial bands. So the, there was just, it was just, it was just hard. Like there was no, it, there wasn't a, 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 a niche, a niche for us there. So, and I, th- I think, I think we did get kind of discouraged about that. Although, you know, we played many great shows. We opened for lots of great bands. Uh, you know, we played many great shows in LA with, Hundred Flowers, The Minutemen, Savage Republic; those bands all loved us. In some ways, I, I think we may, we should have moved to L.A. Duh. Now it seems kind of obvious, right? Yeah. Though we, those bands really liked us. We loved playing with them. But San Francisco was just always very hard. Very, it was hard to gain any kind of traction there. Yeah, I think the surf thing. I mean, people want to classify things, right? So you're instrumental. Yeah. You have some yeah. reverb on the guitars. Oh, they're a surf band. Not realizing, right. like, I don't think you play a single surf beat any, anywhere on this record. Right. You know? Right. Well, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, okay, we were influenced by that sound. Bill Owen played a Mosrite guitar, the right. Ventures Mosrite guitar. So, you know, there were a couple, like, hmm, maybe they are, you know, there were a couple little clues there. You know, we were also influenced by Dwayne Eddy. So it was like Dwayne Eddy, The Shadows, and Surf Guitar were like the guitar influences. But, you know, the, yeah, the surf thing was always just really troubling because we, it would have been, we, we, we could have, we could have been, and it would have been so easy if we had been a surf band, right? Like, <laughs> We were, you know, we 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 just worked really hard and played to know people, and it was we're always flying this stupid like, hey, wait, no, we're good, we don't, you know, we don't need a singer, we're not a surf band. It was just hard. So I, I played in an instrumental band ten years after oh. after this era, and yeah, it was probably at least probably every show we would get a comment about how much better we would be if we just had a singer. <laughs> totally, totally. It, it was ridiculous, right? Like ridiculous. Yeah. Like, oh, I never thought of that. Good yeah. idea. <laughs> I knew something was missing. Yeah. People. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so at some point, John Lars leaves the band, and then Greg Freeman comes in on bass. Yeah, that was a that was a, a momentous change. So um, John Lars was was. Um, you know, I think I think he was unhappy in the Bay Area, and you know, it was again just another one of those sort of partings that bands go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I hung a, a an ad up at the Rough Trade Record Store um, that we were looking for a a bass player, and Greg Freeman saw the ad in there and called me up, and he 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 remembers coming to my apartment in in San Francisco and we we played for him the uh what what was to become the bumper crop studio tracks and he was blown away and really you know he 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 was simpatico to where we were going musically and he you know it was a great great fit for us um that was a that was a, a happy time um he was he had been in the band the call so he you know he was and I think he was, he was had moved to the Bay Area from Santa Cruz, where he was playing in the Call. So you mentioned the bumper crop recordings. So Calvin Johnson releases 
the cassette only for years we stood clearly as one thing uh, yeah on k records so that's the recordings yeah. you're talking about at this yeah point. but see but see we recorded studio we the, the studio tracks that are on that k cassette and also the sst album of the bumper crop mm -hmm. um were originally going to be put out by sixth international which was a rough trade a division of rough trade us okay that fell through we got as far as album cover art and everything oh wow and that fell through which was which also added to our general dejection of yeah. being in san francisco right um and so like we we had basically after after that it was it was demoralizing is too strong a word it was dis it was disappointing and you know i think you know, I, I started to get into other things like graphic design and I wanted to move back east to go to graphic design school. And the 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 San Francisco thing wasn't exactly panning out for Pell-Mell. So then that's that's when we kind of dissolved. And that was the last time we were ever in the same in the same city making records. I moved to Philadelphia. Um, and so Calvin put that cassette out. I figured when he offered to put that out because no one, there was no other home for it. And it was sort of like a, in my mind, it was a career retro. It was sort of like, boom, we're done right. for years. We stood clearly as one thing, which was also a bank of America ad in on the BART system in San Francisco. So you'd see them, you know, you're standing on the, on waiting for your train and there'd be these led for years. We stood clearly as one thing, a financial institution. Right. So we took that as the title. And I, I, I think we all thought that that was going to be the end. That cassette came out on K because again, Calvin friend of ours, Olympia, Bruce Pavitt, Steve Fisk, etc. Right. cetera. And, uh, and the, it was, I guess it was that, that, Greg Ginn heard and then decided to put it put that put an album version of it out on SST. Okay. So the bumper crop is really a mishmash. Like it's live stuff, it's two different studio sessions. Um it's really not, you know, I I have I have I have a hard time with it for that reason. It it's a it's it's like a you know, it's more like a cleaning house kind of a <laughs> kind right. of a release, release than a, than a proud shining vision of what Pomel um, was. Although I love the live tracks, mm -hmm. so um, you know the 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 studio tracks I have a hard time with. Part of it are is the I don't know time appropriate production choices. Some of that yeah. you could say, yeah. um, and just again we were I don't know kind of st not struggling. I don't, well, I guess, I guess I'll say we were struggling. Just, I don't know. They were, we were often tentative about some of the musical choices simply because of, you know, needing to make sure people don't leave in the middle of our sets. Right. Right. How do we hold our own with all these different kinds of bands on a stage? So the material, it's, it's, it, it's a little bit, um, I don't know, just a little, a bit all over the place. Okay. And then, and the fact that the fact that the um, 
that the album itself is some live, some studio, two different studios. You know, it's it, like I said, it's a hodgepodge. It's presented as like a record, but it's more of a compilation. Is that kind of your That's thoughts exactly on it? Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Right. And again, we thought we were done. Right. When, you know, for me, the K cassette was the end. It's like, oh, well, well, at least we put that out as sort of a like, bye-bye. You know, here it is. Um, and then Greg, through, through Greg Ginn, through conversations with Steve Bisk, um, he, he heard, I guess he heard the Rhyming Guitars record and Bumper Crop and wanted to put them out. For the SST re- release, is it? Is anything remixed? Is there any uh, touch-ups yeah, done in the studio? Yes, yes, remixed. We remixed all of the studio stuff. So, so the K cassette has different, different earlier mixes of the studio stuff, and I think there was some vague post-production done on the live things. Most of which were recorded with a boombox. Mm, okay. Uh, Greg Freeman's boombox. So they sound pretty good for a boombox. They do sound great. Yeah. <laughs> they do sound great. I love those live tracks. So yeah, thank you. Um, funny, the only, the other funny thing about, which is really stupid and dorky, nobody, like I didn't. I there were there were like hardly any CDs in the world when the bumper crop when when SSD wanted to do a CD version. So like, and we had extra tracks. Right there's there's extra tracks on the cassette of the bumper crop and the CD and stupidly the extra tracks are right in the middle of the CD because that's where they were on the cassette (laughs) (laughs) and like it never occurred like I I don't know I guess I didn't ask enough questions about what is this new technology the CD (laughs) Um, so it's like there are songs from the rhyming guitarist sector uh, uh, sessions stuck right in the middle of the CD version of Bumper Crop. Alligator Stomp and My Three Sons. They don't, yeah, exactly. Right. They, they don't sound out of place, though. Like, it's, well, a, it's a cohesive sounding album to, okay, to my well, ear. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. To me, they're like, what the hell were we thinking? And why didn't someone say, you know, those can just go on the end? Um, so, yeah. Okay, so on the K cassette, you thank Ray Farrell. So is he at SST yeah. at this point, or is he working with the band? What's his connection? That's a really complicated question. Um, so he, he um, uh, we, we started working with, well, we, we, we met Ray, again, because of his fandom of the Rhyming Guitars record, and you know, way before we moved to Berkeley or anything. Um, so, and then when we did move, when we did move to the Bay area, he became our manager. This was before SST, before he went to SST. Uh, so, and he, he was basically a a fifth, basically like a fifth member. Okay. Um, when he went to SST, you know, I, he, he was always, he, he turned, as I understand it, he turned Greg Ginn onto a ton of great music, as Ray Farrell has turned everybody onto a ton of great music. Um, and, you know, I, I think Palmel was part of that, although um, 
not not as much as uh, you know. I, I think Greg Ginn was actually more interested in Steve Fisk first before before Palmel. Mm. Okay, so turning to the record now, track one, side one, week of fire. And yes. right out of the gate, my first thought was, wow, you and Greg are really locked in here. It's a Thank pretty you. complex pattern. I, are you guys playing in a different time signature than each other on this track? You and Greg? No, no. We had, Greg and I, I think Greg and I, you know, we had great uh, rapport uh, rhythmically. So, and, you know, I, I just, we, we, would, we just locked in. So, um yeah, I, I think that's just that's just you know he's a he's a phenomenal bass player. Yeah. Um, then again, on the next track, Dad's top drawer, I I'm just struck by the the bass and drum patterns. Left me thinking that maybe that was a jumping off point when you were writing these songs. I'm just picturing you guys jamming together and writing these songs, and you and Greg getting the ball rolling. Okay. Most of those songs started with me and Bill Owen um, playing guitars together. I also play a little bit of guitar, or I did mm-hmm. a little bit of guitar enough to write uh, bass lines and simple repetitive guitar parts, which was sort of our stock and trade back then. So he and I wrote most of those songs, like in my apartment in Portland, like. I remember, you know, I, I think I remember coming up with the main riff for Dad's Top Drawer on acoustic guitar. And then we would just build together um, and, you know, come with come up with other parts, teach, you know, John Lars uh, bass lines and then do jam on them from there as a band. So. So, yeah, so that's so. So. So Dad's Top Drawer actually is a much is an older track. Uh, you know, dating from the from from Portland. Okay. Yeah. All this and more. Now here. Same same deal with that. Yeah. That was also on that live cassette as well. Ah, okay. uh, and there, that one's just like, you know, there's a great example of the punk rock. You know, we needed we needed punk rock songs like that. That's your right? fast that one. Like, yeah, super fast and <laughs> yeah. like. We were really, you know, we were big fans of the Feelies um, and that sort of hypnotic blur of, you know, speed. So that's what that was all about. Okay. 69 or 20. I have a feeling my, one of my questions about this maybe is what you're talking about. Some of the, I can't remember how you worded it, but maybe a bit of the, the dated sounds or, or whatever. It sounds like yeah. you're playing a Lindrum on this one. Yeah, I'm not. That was that we ended up in a very fancy studio um, in San Francisco and recorded two tracks. Um, and it's it's six, nine or 20. Oh, sorry. Uh, yep. And that is no, it's my fault for not putting a comma between them <laughs> on the packaging. OK, so the, and the stupid thing about that is we wrote that song. Um, <laughs> this is so stupid. We wrote that we practiced. We had a practice space in Berkeley um, right by the Berkeley theater, a uh, big old movie theater. It, it was actually in the basement of it, I think, uh, or next door. I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, and we wrote that song, finished that song, then went across the street to uh, McDonald's, which was how we ate in those days. And 
chicken McNuggets were sold in packs of six, nine, or twenty. <laughs> so it's stupidly, it's so dorky, it's stupid. It's like, you know, wow. Um, so that became uh, that became the the title for that track. Okay. Um, but yeah, there. See, and that's that's the the sound of that track, um, and the other one with which is that uh, Cinecita that spaghetti westernish one mm-hmm. track those are the two that were both recorded at a fancy studio in san francisco and and you know i think you know the the other the, the other studio tracks we recorded with tom mallon um which was a much more um under not even it wasn't underground it was just you know smaller deal much more in tune with our artistic vision than the fancy studio i think and i think we we had that time we got that time donate free or something um we were offered time there and we took them up on it and recorded those two tracks okay and those two tracks you know we i i think even at the time we weren't thrilled about um just because it was like what are we doing these aren't us i don't know so you know, I like so I like the songs a lot, both songs a lot. But I, I, you know, I have some regrets about the the production of them. So okay, are you playing bongos on this song? No, that's a that's a uh, an octagon loop. Steve Fisk ah, playing yeah. an octagon <laughs> loop. There's all there's all kinds of sounds like that all over all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There are no tracks on which I play bongos. I, w- I was going to ask about Steve, like when you brought him in, was it, did you talk about bringing in sampling and tape manipulation or was it more like? No, we, we were all, we just loved what he did and let him do it. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So in the early days, the, the shtick was a little bit, Bill Owen plays the melodic guitar part and then Arnie May's minimal, distorted, uh, edgier in quotes, guitars would kind of, that, that was the, that was the weave that those were contrasting elements. Right. Right. So, so, and that was, and then that was what was so weird when we all of a sudden were a three, a three piece, um, the con, you know, the, that contrast was gone. Anywho, Steve Fisk came in, I believe, to fill some of that contrast role that Arnie did previously. Right. Okay. And we were also big fans of Perubu. So, you know, the Perubu keyboard, as was, was, is Steve. So, um, you know, they, they were often not keyboard parts in terms of melodies but they were textures you know Mm -hmm. where they were like weird foils for the rest of the band to play against right the next track love trek we have our first we have our first lives track yeah when i was hearing it I, i was wondering to myself like did you guys improvise live or was it pretty laid out it was pretty laid out it was it was pretty darn laid out um I think there were some sections within certain tracks that were freer, but no, it was pretty, pretty laid out. Um, and this, you know, so rhyming guitars, there, there are two 
the Rhyming Guitars record has two big long tracks. Well, they're not even that big or that long these days, but they seemed like it. Uh, New uh, New Saigon and and Red Rhythm. So we had many track, many songs like that that were just like big long. You know, and I I I will say clearly that these this was because we were huge fans of Public Image Metal Box. Mm-hmm. So and like you know we just we loved the idea of these hypnotic long hypnotic grooves so love track love track is another one in the tradition of those two you know versus all the snappier shorter ones that we just talked about before yeah so, you can definitely hear the the metal box influence on yeah on for some sure of these songs for sure metal box and like and and uh, the the uh, the other Great influence, especially on the bass. So jaw wobbles, bass lines, and pylons, bass lines. Yeah, we were like, there were times when I wished we could just like use those bass lines and come up with our own <laughs> instrumental stuff on top. Really, it's like it was that simple. So or that that uh, enthusiastic of an idea, anyway. So right. okay, then we have the two rhyming guitars tracks. Do yeah, you, is that it from that session? Do you know, or is is there that's more it. stuff? Yeah, that's it. There were the four that came out on Rhyming Guitars, and then these two, both of which I believe uh, were Arnie, more Arnie, Arnie, Arnie birthed. Okay. Um, Arnie, you know, Arnie, Arnie had it was a alligator stomp has a real. Um, uh, what was that? Uh, I, I don't know. I guess that that sort of. The, the, the friendly side of New York no wave stuff, um, like the Ray Beats, you know, the, the Alligator Stomp has a bit of that, mm-hmm. uh, or like that Lizzie Mercier de Clou press color record. We were really into that record. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of that, you know, that Z that's on the Z label, some of that stuff made it made its way into that Alligator Stomp track for sure. And My Three Sons was very much like the. Was, was into the feelies. That was, that's like a feelies ripoff kind of thing. Uh, the next track, Estacada. Am I saying that right? Estacada. Estacada is a small town in. Uh, actually, now I don't remember if it's a small town or a suburb. It's a it's a town in Portland that I think was, you know, it's m- more rural. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I don't know what was going. So a lot of these tracks, like so, we we would just come up with these weird, like you know, uh, you know, Creedence Clearwater meets Section Twenty Five, right? Or like like weird, like some some sort of like vaguely down home American thing, married to you know a cold post punk sensibility. Right. So that's where a lot of that. That's what drove some of these things. And again, Estacada is another one of the early, that was from Portland era, trio. That's a trio. We wrote that as a trio. Ah, okay. Super interesting song. It starts out with some dissonance, but almost goes yeah. into a world music vibe, especially you, your yeah. drumming is very percussive. There's some whistles. That was our, that's our blatant, our certain ratio love coming out. <laughs> it's um, cool. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Okay, the next song, uh, Cinecita. Am I saying that right? Yeah, we yeah we did, we talked about that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, that's from the like, the big studio. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and that was our big like spaghetti western epic. 
I feel like, and this might just be from hearing it a zillion times on the No Age comp, I feel like this was like the hit, the band's hit, early wow. hit. No? Hardly. No? No, only because, only because of that comp. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, for sure. I, I don't think we had a hit. I just mean live, like, you know, the song that people yeah. requested or something. Um, no. 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 <laughs> no, sorry. Sadly, I wish. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think people knew, you know, we, we played this stuff and it was like, it always seemed like weirdo. Like we would get the crowds moving and they would like it, but it was always weirdo. Like at first, like, what, are, what is this? It was always just this big, like, what the hell is this? I came to see the wipers. What the hell is this? Hmm. You know, yeah. you can imagine, you can imagine. I can. Yeah. Yeah. But later on, I mean, like, I hate to compare you to a surf band, although I don't really consider them a surf band, but the keys and the reverb, it definitely reminds me of Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, this song yes. in particular. Yes, yes. Well, we we liked them. We knew of them. They were a little more blatant in their surf than we were mm -hmm. um, in the surf vibe. Um, and and like camp, campy, camp aesthetic, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but again, so, okay, so you named one. And there was there was Love Tractor in Athens, Georgia, right? Uh, and the Ray Beats in New York, but it wasn't like, you know, on every new wave bill there'd be an instrumental band. Yeah. So, it just always felt like weirdo music that we were asking people to like, and luckily they did. Many people did like it. You know, it was hard. It was it was a it was a a hard thing to do. You know, we 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 um, you know, luckily when you know, we we played on bills with like with the Minutemen. The when we played in L.A., it was less of an issue. They were more used to it, I right. think. Yeah, I, maybe that scene was more more eclectic. I don't know what bigger city, more cosmopolitan. I don't know what, but like, you know, Savage Republic had longer instrumentals than we did, I believe. And they involved oil cans, you know, oil drum. <laughs> so like, you know, it wasn't. On the spectrum, it really wasn't weird, but just in context, it often seemed really weird. So, no, we never had anybody say, play that one that sounds like a spaghetti western. No, never. <laughs> never. <laughs> okay, and then we've got Fuck the Boss, another live track. Yeah, that's 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 our cover of a Blowfly track. Oh, that's what that is. Okay. Yeah, and we, we shortened it to FTB for being nervous to write fuck on the back of our cover mm -hmm. um, so and that was just that that just became you need some of those sort of like get warmed up songs to start a set with for example you know like the sound might not be right yet you're still bringing it so like that was kind of what that did yeah um but that ended up being a really popular track too live so but it but it is but it isn't like but but no one ever yelled for it. So. <laughs> I don't think anyone ever yelled for anything at our show, unfortunately. I, I missed that part of the punk rock experience. You have a really cool kind of rapid fire effect on your snare, I think it is, on this track. What is that? Do you know? On FTB? Yeah. Uh... It doesn't sound like something you would be able to play. It's that fast. Wow, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it's Steve. Uh, Maybe Steve's doing something, but 
Yeah, it's probably Steve. Yeah. It's probably Steve. He and I would get into these, you know, kind of like percussion, little percussion jam things. Um, and it was often hard to tell who was playing what. Mm. So that's probably what you're hearing. That, Yeah, and that's a live one. That's a live track. Yeah. So. Okay, and then a couple more live tracks on the cassette and CD. Pet Dub and Chroma Key Beach, both live. Yeah. Pet Dub, I think... I think that started as a cover of a Steve Fisk, Steve Fisk song. Uh, I don't remember. That's in some crazy time signature, and uh, you know that was that's another one in the long trippy psych out psych psychedelic freak out pell mell songs. That's right. and then Chroma Key Beach was more. Someone wrote. I read somewhere that that they thought that sounded like Husker Du which was like not anything that I ever thought about, but okay. Interesting. That's another, that was another early one from Port from the Portland trio days. Okay. And then we end with work, health, love, almost like some dub reggae style sounds yes. on there. Yes. Was that an yes. influence? That was definitely an influence. Absolutely. From the early days on, um, yeah, Arnie. Arnie was always big on Arnie and Arnie and John Lars were both into dub records. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know the bass lines. You know that was kind of an that's an easy um, flashpoint for 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 bass lines. And then uh, just you know, instru it, it, dub was instrumental, right? So you know, we we had a natural affinity for that. Um, and I think I think worth work health and love too was also. I remember thinking about Cabaret Voltaire a lot. That two by forty-five record. Uh, I don't. Mm, I don't know. Remember now what year that came out? But it's just these big, long, hypnotic, percussive grooves. Uh, so that was definitely an influence on that one. Okay. I think Work health and love. I think is the Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts slogan. Hmm. Something like that. I don't know. For as flip as it was that we called that first that one song six nine or twenty, we actually did agonize over the song titles. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it's hard, you know, because there's no obviously there's no repeating lyric uh, to bubble up to be the title. Right. Uh, and then we 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 had you know our stupid code names, and then some of those stuck, and then but then we did agonize fairly a lot over the song titles. Well, I mean, for instrumental music, the title still has to kind of capture the vibe of the, that particular it track does. too. It does. It does. And it has to capture it, but, and the same way, like we, we, we didn't ever like people singing over our music because it, it, it limits the interpretation, right? The, it, 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 it's basically telling someone it's putting this narrative on it that may or may not mean anything. So we just didn't like that. So then, you know, as soon as you put a title on something, you're limiting, you're, 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 you're guiding, but also limiting a listener, right? Like you're giving them a little bit of connotation or whatever. Um, but you don't want to limit it too yeah. much. So it's tricky. Okay. The cover art. You mentioned that you were getting into graphic design at this point. Yeah. 
wow, you're you. This is a comprehensive interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I had a, I was I um I got into doing graphic design through designing the posters for the Palmel shows mm. uh, in Portland and Seattle in, in Portland and San Francisco when we lived there. Uh, and then I started to get more and more interested in that and uh, then moved back to uh, Philadelphia, moved to Philadelphia to go to Philadelphia College of Art. Um, and a lot of and this collage that became the cover of the bumper crop was actually um, this was raw material that came out of one of my in a drawing class. We were working on collages. And so I just had this huge backlog of, um, you know, collage fodder that I put together for this cover. I noticed on the sleeve that you have a P.O. box in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, right. So, again, the bumper crop came out after we were done. Right. We were far flung with that. You know, I was in, I was in uh, Philadelphia. Bill Owen moved to Hoboken. Oh, okay. And I don't even now remember why. But he had that P.O. box, and so that's what we put on the cover. Right. Bill's, no in, more... Bill's in charge of fan mail. <laughs> yeah, evidently, right. Evidently, that's how that broke down. Hmm. So when this record came out and Rhyming Guitars came out, I mean, obviously, it's pretty hard when you're all spread out, but n never any discussion, oh, okay, these records are out. Now they're on SST, and people are kind of rediscovering the band or discovering us for the first time no possibilities of playing any shows we were all pretty much enmeshed in our own other worlds then yeah so and um you know i yeah it, it, i think it was just sort of like a we were just busy in our own things it it it, it took dave spaulding's uh prodding later dave spaulding was our sound man right in San Francisco, who also played guitar, but not in Palmel or on stage or anything. He was a he was uh, he was a friend, an old friend of Greg's from from Santa Cruz, and I believe he worked for the Call as well. So um, I moved to Philly. Dave Spaulding moved from San Francisco uh, to New Haven, uh, where his wife went to Yale. Kelly Spaulding, painter, um, who and who did the flow cover. So he, he had he started playing, you know, he started writing some guitar music, and it was that his, his interest sort of reignited, uh, you know, our interest in work in the four of us other Palmel guys working together again. We we were always in touch and remained friends, but. We weren't, you know, again, like I thought the K cassette was the, well, that was, the, that was the summing up end of career boom, you know, that was it. Mm -hmm. um, so we were absolutely not thinking about any further Palmel stuff. How about now though? I mean, it's never been easier to trade files over the internet. It is right. Um, yeah, we're, I think we're all, <laughs> I, I, I think that ship has sailed. Um, yeah, we're just, you know, again, we're friends. We still talk me and Greg and Steve and, uh, Ray Farrell play records together online for each other, you know, every week, once a week. 
but uh, I don't think, yeah, I, I just, I don't, I don't see any further pell-mell music happening. What do you mean you play records together? You well, like meet up no, online? Like, yeah, meet up on, yeah, oh. on, a, on a, a DJ platform. Oh, that sounds super fun. Yeah, it is fun. It is really fun. It is really fun. Hmm. Are you still playing music? I have. Um, okay, so I I play infrequently with locally here in Boston with Gary Wallach, who was in uh, the Volcano Sons and Big Dipper, mm-hmm. um, early eighties, uh, you know, eighties, nineties, uh, whenever eighties bands. Uh, well, you know, you know, Volcano Sons, surely. Yeah. Uh, Big Dipper. Uh, we have we have a project called Mars Classroom, which uh, Robert Pollard sang vocals, sings is the singer. Uh, when Robert Pollard want, decides he wants to do another collaboration, so right. he put Robert Pollard put out one album, maybe ten years ago, seven years. I, don't, I forget. I'd have to go to Discogs. Yeah. Uh, of that, uh, look, my drums are down at Gary's Gary Wallach's house. So I, you know, I have, when we can fit it in, that that's about as often as I play, which is not very. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then there's also uh, Steve uh, Fisk and I put out a record called Cutout, interlude with a fun machine, many years ago, and there's there's talk of rekindling that. That's that's sort of an electronic, all keyboards thing oh, we wow. have going. Yeah. Did I read somewhere that there's an unreleased second album in the can? For Cutout, yes, yeah. there is. With Greg Freeman. Oh, wow. Greg Freeman's on that. Yeah. We're, we, you know, it's, it's just, um, we're just all super busy, and it's really hard for us to focus on, okay, what would it take to put this stuff, even though now it's really simple, I realize that. Um, you know, Bandcamp, there are ne- there's, it's probably never been easier um, but you know, we're old and doing other stuff and it's just not top of mind for us yeah. to get it out there. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, there have been, there have cert- there have been, uh, offers to, to do reissues and stuff from labels, which gets complicated because of the SST relationship. So, you know, whenever that stuff happens, we talk, the, you know, the, the core members talk. Um, so we're still involved together when that stuff comes up. And also there's been like, we just, we just had a track used in a, this American life, uh, podcast episode. So there's that stuff going on, but, um, nothing, nothing, you know, hardcore pell-mell of note. Right. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Sure. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Awesome. Great to have Bob on the show. Um, lots of good insight into what was going on. And uh, there's some great stories there, too. I, I wonder, though, if I'm the only one who noticed that this record is called The Bumper Crop. And Bob plays in a band with Gary Wallach, who is in Volcano Sons, who also had an album called Bumper Crop. They play in Mars Classroom and... Uh, they both were in bands that put out the bumper crop record, I guess. Yeah, I've I've several people point pointed that out in some of the reviews that I have for for this record. 
This one came first, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great interview. Thanks to Bob for being on the show. Um, always like it when the record store singles going steady gets mentioned. Yeah. Uh, they talk about those sub pop comps. You can hear a lot of those online, and they're really good. The Steve Fisk song that they they had heard on Sub Pop Five is called "Digital Alarm." That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I I was gonna mention. You know, they were at least on Sub Pop Five. The the song "Spy versus Spy" from '81, and Sub Pop Seven from '82 with the song called "Some Things We Do for Fun." I also have it that they were on. A trap sampler. They were yeah. from '81, so Greg Sage's label. They did the songs "Catwalk" and "Red Rhythm," and I also there's a book called Sub Pop USA, mm. and it's it's basically the anthology of that zine from 1980 to '88. Bruce Pavitt put it out, and I was reading through it about Pellmell. There's a a statement in here. It says. Pell-Mell will be releasing two songs on the upcoming Trap Sampler. That's what we mentioned. These songs are called Red Rhythm and Catwalk. This summer, Pell-Mell will release a 12-inch 45 featuring New Saigon plus two other songs. This record will also be on Trap Records. Hmm. So I wonder if the uh, the rhyming guitars 12-inch was supposed to be on Trap, maybe. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, I went down a total Portland rabbit hole this week. I listened to the Trap Sampler. Uh, and I also did the 102979 comp, also on trial, yeah. which is a live recording yeah. made at a show in Portland with a bunch of those bands like the Wipers, of course, Stipnoids, Neo Boys, uh, and more. Lastly, I did the History of Portland Punk Volume 1. Uh, there is no Volume 2, by the way, uh, which came out on Objects of Rarity, which was Greg Sage's bootleg CDR only label. Maybe even still available on Xeno Records' website, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's got some great stuff on it. Smegma, Wipers, Neo Boys, Sado Nation, Napalm Beach. I was on a total Portland kick this last week. There's some great stuff there. Yeah. Well, I have to, I have to admit, like, when listening to this record this week, there are some bands, when we go through them on the show, that I'm very aware that in the past when I was younger, I would not have been that into them, Yeah, but I would have been totally into Pell-Mell. Yeah, for sure. Pell-Mell for me is like, they got me thinking about Blind Idiot God, actually. Mm -hmm. Another cool, one of these cool Intro. instrumental bands that, uh, like I, I kind of got low-key obsessed with Pell-Mell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I've been listening to them for about a month straight. Including some of their later stuff, too. Yeah, did you check out Interstate and Star yep. City? Great records. Yeah. yeah, really good. Yeah, I'm a, a Pell-Mell convert, for sure. Uh, I also checked out, Ryan, some of the stuff on this 6th International label. Like, I didn't listen to it, but I I went on their Discogs. That's the Rough Trade US offshoot. Bumper Crop was originally going to come out on 6th International. Yeah. Less than 10 releases between 1983 and 89 on that label. Uh, David Thomas and the Pedestrians. Uh, a yep. live conflict record. Uh, a version of Scream, This Side Up. Toxic Reasons, Kill by Remote Control, Mr. T Experience, uh, Snuff. Hey, how cool is it that Bob, Greg, Steve, and Ray Farrell have a record club? 
oh, that's awesome. I was like, well, I already hang out with Brant like a couple hours every Sunday doing the show. I wonder if he'd be into like hanging out for a couple of more and playing records. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Should we uh, go through these tracks maybe? Yeah, let's do that. History lesson part two. Before we actually go through the tracks, can I hit you with a couple of spiels I tracked down? Yeah, man. About this, about this record and about the band. Yep. Don't forget, of course, that we heard um, Pell-Mell on the No Age comp. And I should give you that Michael Whitaker spiel here. Hit me with some space, man. Yeah. So just to remind everyone, on that No Age comp, SST-102, Michael Whitaker did a write-up of each band on there. And here is what he said about Pell-Mell. Hurtling Pell-Mell against the grain of popular music in the 80s, this band was uniquely ahead of its time. Formed in Portland, Oregon, and ending in San Francisco, Pell-Mell's four-year history is a chronicle of some of the most ambitious pop instrumental experiments ever, dipping just as gleefully into Nino Rota as Neil Sedaka. Their music was always fresh and exciting. By being in the middle of the great music explosion of the late 70s and early 80s, they were able to make advantageous use of the many musics suddenly available to people everywhere. Modern in action and classical in concept, Pell-Mell is a sorely missed part of instrumental music. And then it uh, mentions how the track on No Age is from this release, Bumper Crop. And of course, Pell-Mell still kept on making music afterwards. They were just kind of like, you know, on the shelf until this record was re-released by SST, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, here's what it said in the SST catalog about this release, also by Michael Whitaker. Pell-Mell is one of the earliest pioneers of modern instrumental music. The group, since disbanded, turned in many amazing performances of their sinuous groove music. Hear what makes them one of the most sorely missed bands ever. That's what he says there. And then in this same book, Sub Pop USA, there's a great spiel about them. As Bob mentioned, you know, Bruce Pavitt was doing kind of like little scene uh, notes mm -hmm. as part of the Sub Pop fanzine. So it went kind of scene to scene. By the time he does this write up about this release, they're in San Francisco. Yeah, this is from a, an issue of Sub Pop from August of 1983, it looks like. Um, and this is what he said. Pell-Mell, the bumper crop five-song 12-inch on 6th Street International, care of Rough Trade, San Francisco. So he's Bruce must have known that it was intended to come out mm -hmm. on that. Yep. And he was already suggesting that it was out on 6th Street International. Here's what he says. Round hole, square peg. Instrumentalists pell-mell remain the most original band on the West Coast. Yes, folks, that's right. Trying to package these guys as the latest blah blah whatever is fucking impossible. The minimal hypno-surf sound of their first record is over with. Now it's bass, drums, and guitar, plus new addition Steve Fisk on synthesizer. It's a busier sound, rich, ornate, and rational as hell, like Dwayne Eddy and a certain ratio whom they've cited as influences, Pell-Mell is in love with tone and atmosphere, modern mood music, good for at least 50 listens. There you go. So that was, that was Bruce Pavitt's review of this release. 
before it was actually released, I, I take it. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I've got some reviews too that Bob sent me. Awesome. So we'll get to those after we go through these tracks. So this came out on LP, cassette, and CD. There's three extra tracks on the CD and the cassette. Ryan, are we are we going into the comp zone? You confirmed it during the interview. We are totally in the comp zone. Okay. Track one, side one, Week of Fire. Uh, this is a studio track. So I'm not sure if I explained this clearly or if we talked about it in the interview, but the album that these tracks come from, the K cassette, for years we stood clearly as one thing. One side of that cassette is studio tracks. The other side is live. So this, the bumper crop is made up of those studio and live tracks. Uh-huh. So this is a studio track. Uh, a killer opener kind of has an indie rock vibe, almost like slovenly meets Sonic Youth or something like that. And then it just goes into this killer jam with some great guitar and bass interplay with Steve kind of adding cool effects over top. Yep. It totally paints a picture in your mind as well. Week of Fire. I totally understand. Well, both you and I do, having played in an instro band, how important it is to get just the right name for your instrumental song even though, and especially because there are no lyrics. That's right. And uh, totally fits. Um, and there's some tasty splash symbols on this song too. Yeah. Track two, Dad's Top Drawer, a studio track. Uh, this one dates back to the Portland era of the band. It's on that 1982 live cassette that they recorded in Portland before they went on tour. Uh, these guys are so clearly incredible players. Uh, they're both proficient on their instruments and also very inventive players as well yeah i love the there are a few passages in there where it really sounds almost like a almost like a baritone guitar sound Mm. really really low and twangy uh love that part and brant you know what's in dad's top drawer right (laughs) uh porno mags condoms probably a bit of both all right track three all this and more another studio track this is another one dating back to the portland era Bob calls this their punk rock song in the interview. My favorite thing about this one is that super cool effect Steve is doing on his synth. Track four, six, nine, or 20. Uh, This is one of the studio tracks recorded in the fancy studio, as Bob talks about. Steve kind of propels the main riff of this one. I don't have any issues with the production. We've heard much worse on SST records from this era. Oh yeah. yeah. But I could yeah, yeah, I could yeah. see why the drummer in particular would have issues. It's always the drums, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. No. Like I I I agree with you. I think it sounds good, but I also understand if you were the actual performer that you would be critical. Yeah. Some great It still sounds co- like notwithstanding that it's all these different recording locations, the album sounds very cohesive. Yeah. The way it was must have been the way it was ultimately mastered by John. Yeah. Uh, some great guitar playing in a drop D tuning. Really cool. Track five, Love Trek, our first live song. Apparently recorded on Greg Freeman's Boombox. Uh, as it says on the sleeve, recorded live at various locations on the West Coast in 1984 and 85. This one is cool with the way Bill Owen and Steve Fisk are playing off one another. Almost like trading riffs at one point. Trading licks. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen this live. I mean, I was, I could, I know I would have been just rubbernecking at the side of the stage to this tune, man. Yeah, that's the end of side one on the vinyl. Do you have the CD, Ryan? 
I only have the vinyl. I checked out uh, the extra tracks on YouTube, um, but I couldn't find I couldn't find my three sons. I had to find it surreptitiously to listen to it because I only have the LP. Okay. Well, the next two tracks are CD and cassette only, uh, and they are the two rhyming guitars leftovers recorded in 1981. Alligator Stomp, kind of a dirgy, surfy track. Two guitars in this era. No Steve, so it's a little more straightforward, a little less experimental sounding. Yeah, I thought there were really cool dive bombs on the fuzz guitar there, hey? Oh, yeah. And then My Three Sons, again, a pretty straightforward guitar-driven upbeat rocker. Cool track. Then we're on to side two of the LP, Estacada, a studio track. This one starts out with some dissonance. Uh, Bill Owens just tearing shit up on this track. Also from the Portland era, Steve really adds a lot to these tracks for sure. Great production. Probably really helped having Steve Fisk in your band, but also actually Greg Freeman is a producer engineer with just an insane body of work. He also owned his own studio in San Francisco called Lowdown Studios. He did the Dale Crover, Melvin's solo record, like the Kiss one. Ah. He did Pell-Mell Flow. He did some of Interstate. He did stuff with the Dwarves. Panel Donor, Ryan. Ooh. Fright Wig, nice. Some Velvet Sidewalk, many, many more. Yeah. This song has some Rototom action, which I think is what you were hearing as bongos. Ah, yes. Love the the love the Rototoms, man. Track nine, Cinecita, a studio track. This is the one that we heard previously on the No Age comp. Big Shadowy Men vibes. Uh, also recorded at that fancy studio. I think it sounds great. Bob calls this one there. Sp epic spaghetti western yeah i totally agree with you too and and i'm sure it's because we heard it on no age but for me this is their hit yeah <laughs> <laughs> their hit song track 10 ftb a live song it's called fuck the boss on for years we stood clearly as one thing i didn't realize this is a cover of a blowfly track until bob told us uh yeah. it's from his 1981 album porno freak uh it's it's not like fuck the boss, like to hell with him or her. It's more like... No, no, no. It's, it's the other type. Yeah. It's like telling secretaries what to do to get ahead at Yeesh. work. But um, I do like this. For, it, this could have been a Gang of Four song for me. Yeah. It's so good and funky the way that Pell-Mell does it. Love that. Did you hear the weird percussion thing going on that I asked Bob about? Yeah. I, I really think that that was um, some sort of like rapid fire machine gun thing coming off of Steve's keys. Mm. I'm pretty sure that's what it would have been. Sounds cool anyways. Oh yeah. All right. Another live one, pet dub. And it is almost a dub track, uh, like a more up-tempo metal box thing uh, with Steve doing his, his thing over top of it. Is that what made the connection between Pell-Mell and Blind Idiot God for you? Maybe. Maybe. Cause they both, they both have got that dub influence and it comes through in their music. Yeah, maybe. Uh, track 12, Chroma Key Beach, another live one. Bob mentions this one goes back to the Portland era, although it's not on that live cassette. And then another LP, uh, CD cassette only, track Work, Health, and Love. Uh, it's a cool track built around a kind of a repeating guitar lick. Also some real dub reggae type stuff going on here, uh, including with Bob's playing. It would have been good to have this one on the LP version, actually, because it's really good. It's, it was one of my faves. Um, I, I really wonder how many CDs SST was selling <laughs> in 1987, 88. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. They were, I got to think that they were, you know, leading the charge in the indie world of getting CDs manufactured. I don't know. I do know, though, after checking out these tracks, I'm going to keep my eyes out for a copy of this on CD. Um, I, I do see used Pell-Mell CDs in the bins now and then, and I want to, I'm going to snag this for the extra tracks for sure. Yeah. The K-Cassette for years, we stood clearly as one thing, is a real cool listen if you can track down a version. It's almost entirely on this comp, uh, although the mix is different. There's a studio track called yeah. Barn Dance on there that's not on here, plus four live tracks that didn't make the cut. Business 80, Bubble Prawn, Beat Cut, and Par Avion. Uh, and again, the sound is amazing for a, a boombox recording. Yeah, well, I know like boomboxes are typically not very good sounding, um, but every now and then you could be surprised. In fact, our old band, our first demo tape was recorded on a boombox and got us our first gig. It's true. Okay, here's some reviews, Ryan, that I got from Bob. Some of these are from the Flow press kit, SST press kit, and some are just ah. clippings from other other magazines. And some, I don't, if I don't say where they were, came from, then it, it's not listed here. So here's from the summer 1988 version of, uh, I'm assuming a, a, a zine called Swellsville by this guy, Jack Thompson. Lazy rock writers always compare pell sound to the Feelys crazy rhythms. Such a comparison is mostly misleading. Crazy rhythms was closet trash culture homage, all shimmering tonality and jittery anomie. Everything about pell is contrast sometimes studiously so. Bill Owens' alternatingly jagged and niggly worrisome guitar in contrast with Bob Bierman's clipped disciplined drumming, Steve Fisk's hokey mad scientist keyboard effects in contrast with Greg Freeman's fluid bass. You know that uh, Bring on the China 7-inch that you mentioned? When we go to the 9s? Yeah. You know it actually came out in the same era as Flow, though, right? Yeah. No, they, they started re-releasing 10 inches with using the 900 catalog number and snuck a few 7 inches in there. Hmm. I just think, like, maybe that was what they were... It's just weird. Like, it didn't come out way, way, way after. Because it's in... No. It's, it's, in, the, it's in some of these press kits for Flow. Yeah. It, it just so happens that its catalog number is in the 900s. Yeah. There's a No Man single that also is, is along the lines as well. So we'll, we'll have some 9s yeah. once we're done all these... Okay, here's another review. Pell-Mell took a real basic approach to guitar rock, somewhere between the Ventures and the Clean, and blew it wide open, sometimes cramming more chiming and ringing bits into a tune than they had room to fit. As musicians, they were incredible to watch, though there's nothing about their stuff that I'd describe as flashy or overblown. In some ways, this release is every bit as crucial as the upcoming Burma Lost LP. Interesting. Here's Claudia Perry of the Houston Post. Crop is chock full of delights. Pell-mell unfurls songs like a good storyteller. They set up a little tension at the start and then carefully build a song to the point where you might find yourself up out of your chair without being sure how it happened. From Retro Rock, October of 88, Pell-mell are no ventures, but an even more interesting, listenable, and inventive unit with a talent in making vocals unwanted. Here's from the LA Reader. The style is hard to classify and is reminiscent of Lawndale on the opening number, which mixes surf-tinged guitar hmm. melodies with backups that are cheerful, complex, and energetic. 
About half of this album is recorded at West Coast Club Dates, a good move that showcases their impressively crisp, precise live sound. The four excellent musicians on this album sound like they're having a great time. I'll, I have a feeling I'll be playing this one a lot. That's Richard Foss. Here's from Sound Choice, Winter 89. Fantastic, as cool as a bare ass on dry ice. The drums snap and the bass little, literally rattles the skeleton. I am very impressed by Palmel's sneaky, almost covert use of synthesizer. That's by Bret Hart. Here's from Option Magazine, November 88. Here, as usual, the band builds its rhythmic and precise compositions from the floor up with a sort of disco surf drum beat, chunky bass playing, and clangorous guitars. The addition of keyboards allows for more texture, but it's really Bill Owens' guitars twanging, biting, and crashing in architecturally rigorous structures that sets the band apart sonically. That's Don Arroyo. And then one more, uh, a collection of vaguely flamenco and red Crayola guitar lines collected with B-52 synths and Tangerine Dream parallel fifths. But everything swirls and falls with brisk precision. Each song clicks into a cool groove that evokes a different stream of memories. Some clear, some distorted, none sentimental. It's like music from another universe. How about the artwork, Ryan? Yeah, I think Bob was surprised that you even asked about it. Yeah, well, it's really good artwork. <laughs> yeah, it is a neat kind of abstract collage, hey? Yeah, he did it while he was at art school or design school. Suits the music on the record. It's interesting that they went as far as creating art for the version that was to come out on 6th International. I'd like to see what that artwork looked like. Yeah, definitely uh, th showing some graphic design chops, though, on the on the uh, the cover art. Uh, mine doesn't have an inner sleeve, and I didn't check to see if there's any additional artwork. I've just got the front and back on my version. Yeah, I don't think it came with a sleeve. Some great photos of the band on the back. Yeah, totally. It's pretty. That Steve Fisk photo is is one that shows up a couple more times too elsewhere. Yeah, it's pretty bare bones considering you know, as far as info goes, you know, considering that these tracks were come from so many different uh, sessions. Well, the one thing that I was, you know, noticing, and I think it's the first time. I can't recall it happening before, but there is you know SST with a blatant advertisement for another record label right on the jacket yeah. with the K records, you know, the K and the shield. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure that that has been done before on SST that we have seen. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, good point. How about Dead Wax, Ryan? Zero. Hmm. Zero. Just some uh, serial numbers and John Golden. That's it. Ballot result? Let's do it. Ballot result. What were your picks, Ryan? Well, I really liked the hit, yep. <laughs> Sinisita. Um, Week of Fire is good, like a great opener for me. I also really liked Love Trek, the live one. Um, like I said, I was re I was grooving to it, and I was like, man, that would have been really cool to see live. Yeah. My faves were Week of Fire, 6, 9, or 20, Estacada, Sinisita, Work, Health, and Love. But you're, you get to pick this one. Why? Because it's 2021, and I want to get the year started out. I'm going to let you pick <laughs> the first one of 2021, and then I'm going to pick all, and then I'm going to pick all the rest. Yeah, yeah. I figured you were setting me up for sure. Um. So we did not pick Cena Sita as the No Age ballot was out, right? 
No, I don't remember what we picked. It might have been Blinded of God, maybe even. I don't recall. I don't think it would have been Pell-Mell, though, back then. We would have intentionally waited for this one. Hold on. I'll look it up. Universal Congress of. Ah, Chasing. interesting. Yep. Wow. We've really grown so much since episode 102, <laughs> haven't we? <laughs> All right. I, you know what? I'm going to go with Cinecita. All right. Done deal. I, I think it's like, like I like a lot of tracks on here, but it's definitely the one um, that was my favorite, likely due to, you know, the familiarity, but um, I love it and it'll fit really good on a comp tape. Yeah. Hey, thanks to Bob for being on the show this week. Really appreciate it having him on it was great talking to him yeah no doubt and not to be outdone brant next week is sst 159 the steve fisk record 448 deathless days and we've got a special guest you bet we do steve fisk is on the show nice hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.